I wandered so aimless, a life filled with sin, I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night, praise the Lord, I saw the light. Do you know how the chorus of that song goes? I saw the light, I saw the light, no more darkness, no more night. Uh, Now I'm so happy, no sadness in sight, praise the Lord, I saw the light. Now, if I was a country preacher, you know, that's where country preachers really get going. Because at that moment, you know, they, they just kind of belt it out as loud as they can, sing it to the top of their lungs, and then they, they take a few moments and they just let those words kind of hang over you, you know? And they pull out a handkerchief and they kind of wipe the sweat from their forehead as you're just thinking about it. And then they say, yeah, and some of you like it, right? You're like, yeah, give us some of that. Some old school preaching here. And they let it hang over you, and then they say, hey, did you hear those words? Have you seen the light? Have you seen the light? Because if you haven't, maybe that explains why you're kind of clumsily living life foolishly, why you're kind of bumping into things, because you're still living in the dark. Paul was on trial. Right, One gesture from King Agrippa, one movement from the governor Festus, and his, his life could have been over. He would have been executed. Right? He, was, he was on trial. And Festus, he was the new governor. Last week, we, we remember Felix was the one kind of with, with Paul, but Felix, his reign as governor had ended. And two years later, and now Festus is the governor, and Festus, he invited King Agrippa to come and to be a part of this trial and to hear Paul because King Agrippa was a little bit more familiar with the Jewish customs and how things went and the ceremonies and everything. And so he thought, hey, maybe King Agrippa can uh, help us understand Paul a little bit better since he's more familiar with the way of the Jews. And between the two of them, maybe they could figure out what to do and how they should handle Paul. So Paul, he's brought before the two of them. He's invited to give his defense here in Acts 26, but he doesn't. You you would think, right, after waiting for over two years to be heard and for finally, okay, now I'm on trial again, I get to present my defense. You would think that maybe by this time that he would have gotten up there and he would have quoted like the Roman law to them, that he would have maybe quoted some legal precedent. Maybe he he would have introduced Agrippa and Felix to, or Festus to his dynamic attorney. But that's not what he does. The only thing that Paul does is he gives a defense, he just preaches. And he preaches so far and just with such passion that he assumes by the end of it that Agrippa is going to come out of the darkness. Okay, the, the only thing that Paul was really concerned with was that Agrippa see the light. I'm going to read this morning, Acts chapter 6, we're going to look at the whole chapter. Acts 26 uh, is one of, some of the best preaching, some of the best writing that we have recorded. It, it is beautiful prose, so uh, we're, we'll read the whole chapter this morning, Paul's defense before Agrippa in Acts 26. It reads, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am making my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. 
especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and all those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint to you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that I should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, are you out of your mind? Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only that you, but also all who hear me this day become such as I am, except for these chains. 
Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Over and over again throughout the course of Acts, as we've kind of been on this journey for a while, we notice that Luke is making the point that Paul is not a threat to the Roman government. He's trying to hammer this home to Theophilus that, that, that Paul is not callous to the authority of Caesar. Okay? That he's not trying to undermine the Roman government. That Paul is simply a man called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, both to Jews and also to Gentiles. And he's making the point to Theophilus that, hey, it's not really the Gentiles who are so upset. It's the Jews. It's the Jewish people who are really getting upset. They're the ones behind all this. And the fascinating thing is, you know, the, the amazing thing is, is that Paul is not primarily concerned about the outrage of the Jews. Now, you, you would expect that if you were on trial for your life and there is this defense being made against you, that you would come prepared. That you would cite the Roman constitution, that, that you would talk about the Roman law and how you're innocent of it. And, you know, we would recognize, Donnie and I were talking about this just this week, that if we were on trial, we would rationalize it this way. If I could just get my freedom, and if I could just be pronounced free, then I will have all these opportunities to share about Jesus. Right? And so it's the prudent thing to do. It's the rational thing to do. It's the right thing to do. I just got to make my defense. I got to get free. And then I could go about preaching. Paul doesn't do that. He, he doesn't try to make a defense. He doesn't cite Roman law, legal precedent. He doesn't appeal to the Roman constitution. He doesn't hire a smooth-talking attorney to make a defense. Paul stands up and simply shares his story. Because he says, I have an opportunity to share my story, and he uses his story to share Jesus because his story is not really about him, you know. His story is about what Jesus has done in his life. And many people are standing in the room, and, and Paul says, hey, they know me. They, they know the way I grew up. That they can testify if they wanted to that I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees, that I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. That when it comes to keeping the law, boy, I kept the law. And all these people here, they could testify to that if they wanted to, if they would stand up and say such a thing. He says, I was the most dedicated of them all. You know, an interesting point about this claim of Paul, and it's not the first time that he's made this point, by the way, that he's a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. The most interesting thing about this is no one ever challenges that. Right? Everyone knows it's true. I mean, it, you know it's true because you have this resounding affirmation of silence. That no one's, well, hang on a second, Paul. You, you weren't really that good of a Pharisee. You weren't really that much of a Hebrew. You, you didn't really oppose Jesus the way you're saying. No, no, no. They, they sit back and they're kind of nodding their heads. Well, you know, we, we got to give it to them there. You know, he, he really was. He, he, he was that committed. He was that type of a Pharisee. He was that type of a Hebrew. See, they, they just sit back and agree, and their silence speaks volumes because they know, yeah, this really was who Paul used to be. This really does define his 
past. Paul says that as he was traveling on that Damascus road, as he was commissioned by the chief priest to hunt down other people, members of the way, people who believed in Jesus, that he was on that Damascus road, a light that was brighter than the sun knocked him down and all of his traveling companions with him. And in the middle of that, he says he saw the risen Christ who asked him, what in the world are you doing, Paul? What are you doing? And from that moment on, he says, I was called to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to preach the message of the gospel both to Jews and also to Gentiles throughout the Roman Empire. You remember in Acts chapter 9, it's been a little while now, but back in Acts chapter 9 when Ananias was sent to, to lay hands on Paul, to pray for Paul, that the scales would fall off his eyes, to be able to see again. And, and do you remember how Ananias commissioned Paul? Do you remember what he said? He said, tell Paul how much he is going to suffer for my name, for he is my chosen vessel to kings and to rulers and even to the Gentiles. You see, this is the ministry that Paul was called to. And right now, Paul sees it all in front of him. He's living this vision that he was called to, this mission that he was called to give his life to. It's all right in front of him. He's standing in front of a king. He's standing in front of rulers. He's standing in front of Jews. He's standing in front of Gentiles. This is what he was called to. And so now in this moment, as he's got kings and rulers and Gentiles and Jews, he doesn't just make a defense and say, I deserve to be set free, you know. Legally, I didn't do anything wrong. No, no, he tells his story. He preached. See, whether he lived or died, safety was of little concern to Paul. Safety was not the value. He wanted to say before Jesus, hey, I was standing in front of all those people, and I preached until my last breath. It reminds you a little bit of Jesus when he was on trial and even on the, this is the type of life that Paul lived. Now, what kind of vision do you have to have that that literally it cannot be beaten out of you? I'm not exaggerating. You literally could not beat this vision out of Paul. This encounter with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road and the commissioning later by Ananias, it became the driving force of Paul's life. People challenge him, people want to know something about him, people throw him in jail, people question him, he comes to a new city, there's these threats, he's got Jews following him from place to place, and he takes them back continually to the moment where he met Jesus. And he said, this changed my life, and it just comes out of him, all just comes out. See, some in the early church, they, they would complain and they say, I don't know if we can trust Paul, you know? We don't, we don't think he's a real apostle. Can we really trust that Paul's an apostle? Now, what was, an, what was the credential to be an apostle? Do you remember? It was that you had to be a living witness, an eyewitness to the risen Christ. That, that was it. That, that's the credential to be an apostle. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 9, he said, I or am I not an apostle? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? 
And in chapter 15, he, he goes and he lists all the people that Christ appeared to. He appeared to him, and he appeared to him, and he appeared to him. And then he added, and he appeared to me, this one untimely born. Christ appeared to me. See, this vision became Paul's future. It became his destination. The vision that Paul had on the Damascus Road, it defined his life. It was so powerful, it made him homesick. Not, not homesick for a place here on earth, but homesick for his true home in heaven. He realized, hey, the earth is my mission field. This isn't home. It gets better than this. Paul tells the Philippians that, hey, you know, some days I just don't know what to do. You know, I know it's good for me to be able to stay here and to teach you, and that's important, and that's, you know, that's needed for me to be able to preach. But honestly, some days I'd rather be home with Jesus. You know, for me to live is Christ, but oh, to die, that's gain. This, this is Paul. He would later say that he would throw out everything of his life, get, get rid of it. Get rid of it all. None, 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 none of this stuff, none of this material stuff is of any consequence. It's all garbage compared to knowing the work of the Lord Jesus and the power of his resurrection. He tells them, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have run the race. And there will be a crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge that he will give to me. Not only to me, but all those who eagerly await his appearing. In the great chapter of love that we think about, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul ends with this. He says, when I was a child, I, I thought like a child. I spoke like a child. But when I became a man, I put, put away the foolish, childish things. Now I see through a glass dimly. But then I will see face to face. I will know as I am known. See, what happened to Paul on that Damascus road made him long for the time that he would know God as he is known. That he got that glimpse of the risen Christ. And man, that just marked his life. So this is now what I'm living for. That when I can be home and that, that vision doesn't have to be interpreted anymore. I just get to live the reality of it. What kind of a powerful Vision is that that just transforms his future. You know, there's, there's certain things that you study about God and, and then you learn something about him and you're just kind of blown away. You know, it just kind of makes your brain fry a little bit because God is so much bigger than us. We're like, man, how am I supposed to wrap my mind around that exactly? One of those things is the, uh, the transcendence and the eternality of God. You know, I mean, you start thinking about that for a little while, and it's like the, the, the brain waves just, they just don't kind of connect all the way. Because you think, what does that mean, that God is, is eternal, that he is not limited by time or space? Well, it means that God is with us in our present, right? That, that, that God is here now. We don't have to invite him in or anything like that. In his omnipresence, he is already here. He's already with us. But it also means that when God speaks of the future, not being limited by time or space, that the future that he pronounces is as good as done. That if he says this will happen, this will happen. That it, it, we have that kind of hope, that, that we're confident that what Jesus says will be is basically already is. 
because he speaks from a position of eternality, not limited by time or space. God having already completed in the future what he says will come about, and so we're we're just kind of waiting to get there because we know that's what will happen. We're not just hoping it gets finished. Just kind of, well, that would be really great if it all works out the way God says it will work out. No, we, we live with this sense of confidence and this sense of hope and this sense of joy. There's no anxiety, there's no worry, because we know in the end it's going to work out just the way God says it is. We live with this sense of anticipation. And faith is living in the present like the future that God has spoken about is already. So we begin to live the kingdom life now knowing that is what the kingdom life will look like then. We have that type of confidence, that type of understanding. And so part of that means I understand that the, that the currency that I'm really concerned with is the currency of love. It's not so much the dollar bill, it's not so much gold, because the currency of heaven is not a dollar bill, it's not gold. Streets are paid with that. The currency of heaven is love. And so how do, how do I love others? How do I love God well? What is love? And so we dig into that. What, what does true love really look like? Because when standing before Christ, I want to be rich toward him. I want to have that type of currency. And that currency is love. But in this eternality of God, we also recognize that, that God is not absent from the past. So that moment that we look back on in our lives that is our darkest moment, our ugliest moment, that moment that we would just assume forget, that we would never speak of, that we don't want anyone really to know about because it's so ugly and shameful and hurtful. And we don't even feel good thinking about it. We have this hope that God is still in that moment that he is still able to heal that moment so that it doesn't bleed into our present, that it can be finished. And that that moment that is so ugly and so hurtful and so painful, it can become the first line of our story. Do you see that? Paul, Paul talks about the ugliest moment in his life, that he's commissioning the death of Christians that his hatred of Jesus and the hatred of the way is so ugly that he's, he's, he's following them, chasing them from city to city, wanting to put them to death. But God healed that moment. Do you see? God healed that moment. And now Paul, he, he doesn't back away from it. He doesn't hide back from it. He doesn't try to ignore it and pretend as if it never happened. Now it's the first line of his story. He says, Jesus redeemed me from this. Imagine what he can save you from. Paul's encounter with God, with a God that big, it drove everything about him. It redefined his life. It defined his life in the courtroom where he didn't need the smooth-talking attorney. He just wanted to get up and say, this is another opportunity to share. You know, in previous messages, we, we kind of looked at Paul's testimony, and you could go back and you, and you can kind of listen to those or read back through, or even in this chapter, look at the, the nuts and bolts of Paul's testimony and how he explained his life before Christ and how he explained how he came to Christ and then how he explained what God was doing with him since he came to Christ. And, and you can learn from that 
And we've done that in the past, but this morning, knowing that we have done that, I wanted just to take a step back and get the bigger picture, get the foundation that what caused Paul to live like this, to, to speak like this, because you can practice your testimony all you want. I mean, until you're blue in the face, you can go through it and, and you can construct it really nice and really neat. And okay, here's my life before Christ. And I give a few details, but not so much, just enough to kind of build a bridge and connect with people. And, and then I give the details of how I came to Christ. And I, I go through the whole gospel and I make sure it's really clear in my testimony. And then I get really detailed about what God is doing in my life since coming to Christ. And all that's really important. You can, you can practice that and you can hammer that so you have a smooth testimony that can really connect with people. But the fact of the matter is that if you don't have a vision, that if Christ isn't real in your life, that you haven't encountered him like this, if you haven't seen the light, you'll never see the opportunity to share. You'll just stay quiet. You'll have a polished testimony that never gets told. See, Paul, it just oozes out of him because it defines everything about him. It's just who he is. So it just comes out. I mean, Paul's vision of God was so big that he took it with him into the courtroom, that he took it with him in every city that he went to. That as he's beaten, he takes it with him there. And you look in Acts 27, and Paul, he's, he's being transported to Rome, right? He's appealed to Caesar, so he's being transported to Rome. And he's finally on his way there, really. I mean, leaving Caesarea behind and on his way to Rome. And the, the, the Roman guards are kind of anxious, I guess, to get Paul and the other prisoners to Rome. So they leave later in the year than they should have. I mean, you go back and you, you read Acts 27, and... You know, they, they leave late in the year, so they leave when all the storms come about. And so they're traveling through all these storms and crazy waves splashing into the boat and lightning just kind of tinseling, uh, tinsel, uh, whatever, through the air. <laughs> and it's just storm after storm after storm. And the people, they've, they've barely eaten anything, it says. And Paul's there, and he's calm. You know, everyone else thinks they're going to die. And they think it's over. And Paul is calm because he's convinced of this vision that they're going to make it. And he even tells them at one point, he says, Hey, listen, everyone on board, we're going to make it alive, but the ship is going to be destroyed. Okay, The ship's not going to make it, but we're going to make it. And they, they must be, th- this Paul's crazy. You know, how are, in the world are we going to make it to Rome if the boat doesn't even make it to Rome? And a little while later, another storm comes, and Paul says, hey, here's some food. We haven't eaten much lately here. You've got to take some food and eat. And these guys, they're probably thinking, well, this is our last meal. You know, let's, let's go ahead and enjoy it. It's our last meal. And, and Paul, he stops, and he prays, and he gives thanks. In the middle of the storm, he gives thanks. Because he had a vision so big that say, hey, whether I live or die, that's not, that's not of supreme importance here. The purpose of my life is to share Jesus and to impact people. And so that's what drives him. And so they eat and he prays and he gives thanks. And a little while later, just like Paul said, the, the boat breaks apart. They run into a, le- a, a coral reef and they're shipwrecked and they're, they're up on, on the beach. 
And the Roman guards thinks, oh no, this is not good. We, we need to go and we need to kill all the prisoners or else we're going to be in some trouble. But the centurion, the leader of the Ro- Roman troops, he said, no, no, no. He steps in and says, no, we're not going to kill him. We're going to keep him alive. But throughout the whole thing, Paul's vision is so strong, he's still committed to that which God has called him to. Paul wrote about it in 2 Corinthians, about how many times he was shipwrecked, about how many times he was beaten, beaten with rods, about how he was snake bit, how, how many times he was thrown into jail. I mean, you go through the list, and you see whether Paul is on the road or whether he's back at home, it doesn't matter. He's always in trouble. He's always in danger. And he just goes and he lists all these things. And the list is great. I mean, you read it in 2 Corinthians. He says, I, I was shipwrecked. I was thrown in jail. I was beaten, snake bit. And then he ends it with the last one, okay? And the last one he says is, and I had to pastor these churches. He ends it, all this trial, all this difficulty, and he ends it with pastoring churches. Why? Because he knows the importance of that. He said, man, this is what I'm giving my life to, to lead these people, to plant churches all over the Roman Empire so that people would know Jesus and the struggle that comes with that. What kind of vision did Paul have? You know, that, that is an interesting question. What kind of vision did Paul have? Which brings us back to our first question. That old country preacher. Have you seen the light? Have you seen the light? Because if you haven't seen the light, if you don't have a vision like that, how will you know where you're going? If you don't have a vision like that, how will you know when you get there? If you don't have a vision like that, then what does drive your future? Paul knew his purpose in life. And that's why all the adversity, everything that kept getting thrown his way, didn't phase him. Because he had a vision. He knew what he was here for. Do you have a group who you lead? Who you pastor? <laughs> you know, the Greek word for pastor is found in a, in a list of spiritual gifts. Okay, it's the, the real term, you know, we, we use the, the terms a little different in the church these days, but the real term for leader in the church is elder, that we would translate it in English. But pastor is just a, it's just a, a spiritual gift. In fact, you even find women in the Bible with the gift of pastoring, not the office of elder, but the gift of pastoring. And you know the thing about spiritual gifts is? We're all supposed to do all of them. We just excel at some. You know, we're all supposed to be hospitable. It's not, well, he has the gift of hospitality, so we'll just let him do it. No, we're all supposed to be hospitable. Evangelism, well, yeah, I don't really have that gift. It doesn't matter. We all get to share Jesus. To lead people, we all get to do that too. And Paul recognized that the churches that he had planted, the people he was leading, 
Man, this was of supreme importance. So are you leading people? Are you leading people to make a difference in the, in the public arena, in the public square? Do you, can you take people alongside you and say, hey, th- this is how you would start a Bible study at, at your workplace, or, or this is how I go into Starbucks and just kind of start up conversations? This is what I'm doing in my neighborhood. I've got this community barbecue I do once a month, you know. Whatever the case may be, are, are, are you leading people so that they would share Jesus and impact people with their lives, and then you're able to look back and you're able to say, man, I can't believe they're doing that. And really, I can't believe I'm doing this because I never would have dreamt that God could have used me to do this. But if you haven't seen the light, how in the world will you ever find your way? You know, stumbling in the dark is no way to live. So I'll ask again, Have you seen the light? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we don't have to chase the light down, that we don't have to go out and try to find the light. (laughs) But through your son, Jesus Christ, the light has come to us. We were the ones lost. You found us. Thank you that Jesus wasn't lost and we didn't have to find him. But God, as recipients of the light, the good news of Jesus Christ that has been made known to us, help us to live as children of light. Help us to be the light shining on the hill, the light in our communities that you've called us to be. Help us to represent you well this week. We ask this by the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.